0: If you have your copy of the scripture, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 10. And we're going to be asking the question today, what makes a good neighbor? It comes from one of the more popular parables that probably our children know and different things like that if they've been in Vacation Bible School or Sunday School here life groups for very long, we study the parable of the good Samaritan and it's an interesting question because a lot of times we think about what it means to be a good neighbor. And what comes to mind for us is that being a good neighbor must mean that we are good friends with someone. And that definitely helps. I mean, it's, it's great to have friends that are neighbors and, and people you enjoy hanging out with. Uh, but maybe we would think that a good neighbor is someone who's helpful. And I, I definitely have to say that The overwhelming majority of my life, I've been blessed to have good neighbors. I mean, not just decent people, but actually good neighbors. And you hear these horror stories all the time of people who were in constant conflict with their neighbors and different things, and it's a really tough thing when that happens in that way. Good friends, people who help us. Maybe it's what the poet Robert Frost said in 1914, it's good fences. That's what keeps good neighbors happy in his poem that he wrote called Mending Wall. He talks about two neighbors who are going through the ritual that they have to go through every year to rebuild the stone wall that separates them. And they do it together. It's part of what they do. And in the middle of that, as they're working, the poet kind of questions, I don't have cows, you don't have cows. Why, why are we doing this with these walls? And he says it like this. "There, where it is that we do not need the wall. He is all pine. And I am apple orchard. My apple trees will never get across and eat the cones underneath his pines, I tell him. And he only says, good fences make good neighbors. Maybe we think that it's, it's just about protecting ourselves and, and having an established boundary there that helps us to get along with people. But Jesus was once asked by someone, who is my neighbor? And this guy was trying to justify himself. So Luke chapter 10 Verse 25 will be our text as we start. Let's look at this great parable and see what God might say to us from it this morning. Let's read. Then an expert in the law stood up to test him saying, "Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?" "What is written in the law?" he asked. "How do you read it?" It's interesting that Jesus says this to him because he's basically saying, "Well, well, you're the expert. You're the lawyer." Why don't you inform me on what it is? And the man says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, he told him. Do this and you will live. Now, it said that the expert in the law was trying to trap Jesus and see if they could trick him. A couple of the other gospels record uh, Jesus trying to be trapped in this way as well. And Jesus answered this way and said, the first and greatest commandment is love the Lord, your God, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Where does that come from? This expert in the law was rightly quoting out of the books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. In Deuteronomy, you see there was chapter six and verse four, something known as the Shema. It's a a prayer, still prayed today, it starts, you may have heard it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God. And it kind of follows that, that line of reasoning. Teach this to your children. Bind it on your doorpost. I mean, that, that, that's kind of the idea there. So when the expert in the law summed that up, Jesus is like, that's, that's right. And then he said, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19, 18, where it says, don't hold a grudge. Don't, don't, don't take vengeance against... Those in the community, your your fellow Jews, love your neighbor as yourself. God's establishing a nation. And this is how they're supposed to act. Well, we might think, good job. You got it right. You gave the same answer Jesus did. But this guy wasn't content because he goes a step further in verse 29 and the scripture tells us, A little bit of insight here, but wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Well, this is one of those questions you say to yourself, I don't think I would have asked that because it's about to expand beyond what you think. Maybe this guy like us would think it's the people I live in proximity to. I mean like the people in my neighborhood, we should look out for one another. We should take care of one another. Maybe he's thinking it's the people I go to temple with. On the Sabbath, it's it's my life group, that's my neighbor. Maybe it's the people he went to law school with, you know, as he's learning the rabbinical laws, and he thinks, those are my neighbors. And Jesus stretches it beyond his wildest imagination because he would have never thought that love your neighbor as yourself went beyond the Jewish people. Those were the people in his world. And Jesus begins to say it's not just who's your neighbor, but who are you going to be a neighbor to? Let's read the parable. Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him, bandaged all of his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine, and then he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Now, this story that Jesus kind of grabs from everyday life and puts in front of them is something they all would have known. Jerusalem sits at kind of the pinnacle of a mountain and Jericho is down in the valley. And as you travel, it's, it's about 17 miles and a 3,300 feet of elevation drop to get there. And it's a place that a lot of governmental officials had to travel back and forth from because Herod had built a provincial palace down there as well. So it's a road that's traveled, but it's a road that is fraught with danger. Because you see, just like when I read this and I think about this, it makes me think of the old Westerns. Why are you riding your horse in the canyon? Everyone knows you're gonna die. You know, you don't go in the canyon. Black Bart's waiting on you to ambush you there. That's what's going to happen. And and there's rocks and valleys and crevices. It's a great place to rob people and it's far from the prying eyes of the constables or the local police or the government. It's kind of in the wilderness out there. And so the story goes that in this unfortunate case, a man who we assume is Jewish and I think everyone reading, or, or I'm sorry, we're reading it, they're listening to it, would have assumed was Jewish as well comes upon this unfortunate season of life where he's robbed and the scripture says that he was beaten up and the literal word, it's not a euphemism, left half dead. Half dead. He's clinging within an inch of his life to his life and if something isn't done, he won't recover. Of his own volition and will and power and strength, he cannot get up from that place and do anything. And so the story goes, That a priest walks by and you would expect a a priest to stop and render aid. But the priest sees him and goes, I got to get down to Jericho. I don't don't have time for this. And goes around. Doesn't want to be troubled by it. A Levite, it says, does the same thing. Now you have to understand that priests were responsible for leading the worship of the entire nation. And the Levites were responsible for all the work that went into that worship. They're they're doing a lot of the mundane tasks all around the temple area and serving the Lord. That's what the tribe of Levi did. So these are well-respected, highly esteemed individuals in the culture who choose just to kind of slide by. Now, you do that. Or at least I think you do it. Not that confession is always good for the soul, so we're not going to ask you to raise hands, but have you ever seen somebody in the grocery store and thought, ooh, I don't have time to talk to them today. I don't want to, and you just kind of duck, run and get your your stuff out of the freezer aisle and hope you make it through the self-checkout before they can corral you and start talking to you. I, I just don't have time for it today because that's what it takes, right, to enter into this man's story, where he's at and and help him, you're gonna to have to do something that, that is going to disrupt your journey. It's, and, and I don't know, it, no one ever asked me if I have time for a crisis. Do they ask you these things? Hey, is this a good time for my world to fall apart so you can help? That's the nature of a crisis, isn't it? It comes upon you and it just presents itself and you're always busy, you're always got a reason that you could slide by, you always have a reason not to get involved. Because it's obviously going to be messy. This guy has nothing. He can't repay you. He's within an inch of his life. It's it's not like you're going to put a band-aid on this and help him up and be like, come on, fella. Let me help you to the next town. This is going to require something. And two failed the test. They walked by. They saw it and said, uh, not today. I, I... I really don't want to be involved. I really don't have time for this. It's really quite murky and it's a difficult thing and I don't want to be involved. But one passed the test, didn't he? Verse 33, there are three words that changed this story. But a Samaritan. Everyone who heard Jesus saying this would have immediately went, what's going to happen? Will the Samaritan walk up and finish off our poor helpless victim? Because we know that Jews and Samaritans don't get along. There's enmity between them. If you go back and read the Bible and you get lost in the Old Testament trying to keep all the kings straight, join the crowd. It's hard because there's a lot of different kingdoms, but there are two that we're talking about primarily, the Northern Kingdom, Israel, and the Southern Kingdom, Judah. What's going on? Well, pretty soon after David, the kingdoms are fractured and you have the northern kingdom, and that becomes the area of Samaria. And the Jews don't like these people because they don't see them as orthodox. In fact, the Samaritans uh, began to intermarry amongst other peoples, and they even set up a different place of worship. You do not do that. There's no other place to worship. It's only at the temple. You don't do that. You may have heard it said that Jews, instead of taking the shortcut and walking through Samaria, would walk around Samaria just so they wouldn't have to be defiled. So when Jesus says, but a Samaritan, all of a sudden, everybody is paying very close attention to this because there's no way this guy can be the hero, a priest, a Levite, but a Samaritan. And in fact, he's going to be. The Bible says that He bandages his wound with olive oil, uses wine. Olive oil would have been helpful in healing and the wine was an antiseptic. It's basic first aid. This is compassion being played out in a meaningful way. I remember, and maybe some of you are old enough to remember in the room, we have our children and you know, old people always tell you you have no idea how good you have it. So let me tell you, you have no idea how good you have it. How many of you remember that when cleaning a cut meant it had to hurt? Anybody, right? I remember being at home one day, probably one of the first days my parents had left us to be home, and my sister had some kind of bike wreck or something like that, and she came in all bloody and everything, and I went to our little cabinet where the first aid was, and I, I pulled out the Band-Aids and the back team. Anybody remember the Bactine? Bactine for infection, protection, yeah. And I started shaking up the bottle and she's like, is this gonna hurt? No, no. And I don't know what made me happier, the look on her face when it actually hit or hearing her scream, you know? It was an amazing moment because if you remember, it had to hurt. We used to carry alcohol wipes. Do you remember these days? Let's just, I don't know what we were thinking fantastic. That's what this man's doing. Except he's not looking for the scream. He's bandaging it. It's tender. The Bible says that he had compassion. And it goes further in verse 34 and 35 because it says that he's willing to bear a burden. He goes to an end, sets the guy up after putting him on his own animal and taking him to the end and sets him up there. And the scripture says that setting him up there... He takes two days' wages, two denarii. This a day's wage, is one. He gives him two of day's, his day's wage and says, You take care of this, and if there's any other problems, I will be back and I'll take care of it. Now, this guy cannot pay him back, remember? He's, he has no clothes, he has no money back, everything's gone. So entering into this story, there's there's no hero worship going to take place. There's no recognition that's going to take place. There's no chance of being paid back. You're just doing it because it's the right thing. After saying this to the expert in the law, Jesus looks at him and says this. Would you read it with me in verse 36? Which of these three do you think proved... To be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, Go and do the same. Jesus had said, But a Samaritan, this man can't even say the word. He just says, you know, the guy. The one who did the right thing. The one who showed mercy. That, that that's who did it. The one who showed mercy. He he can't even say Samaritan. And Jesus says, go and do the same. The one who showed mercy. Well, what is mercy? What can be defined as compassion for the miserable? You remember that the Samaritan had compassion, it said. It wasn't just that he saw him and he just quickly bandaged it. But you get the picture of, of someone who's doing this skillfully and carefully and mindfully. You know, it's, it's what I think about. If you come to our church on any given day of the week, you'll find kids playing on a playground. And when somebody falls and gets their knee hurt, you don't just give them a band aid and slap them on the back. Get up, you're tough, do it. You watch these mothers, and what do they do? Come here, and they set them up, and they gently clean it off, put a band aid on. It's the picture, isn't it? Of someone who's compassionate in the work that they're doing for someone who is miserable. This man is in a miserable position, a miserable state in which he's in. And and most of the time, we don't have compassion for the miserable. You know what we do? We scorn them. Well, I mean, every idiot knows you shouldn't be walking this road at night by yourself. I mean, I could have told you that. You did it to yourself. You made these choices, now you have to lie in the bed that you've made. This is your fault. You're going to have to live with the consequences. I mean, that's kind of how we approach people. And, And if we're not careful, what we start to do is exhibit what's the opposite of mercy is actually judgment. We're judging people for the circumstances that they're in. Judging people for the life choices that they've made. And all of those things are absolutely true. Maybe this guy shouldn't have been traveling by himself. Maybe he shouldn't have been traveling that dangerous road without a caravan of people because there's strength in numbers for sure. Maybe that should have been what he was doing. But regardless of what he should have been doing, this is where he was. And everybody else moved away from him, but a Samaritan moved to him. If you were to turn in your Bibles, maybe one chapter back, one page back, To Luke chapter 9, you would see this play out in the disciples' lives as they were making this journey to Jerusalem. Verse 51 says, when the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of himself, and on the way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But they did not welcome him because he determined to journey to Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. We really don't want you to stay here tonight, Jesus. Hey, I got an idea. Let's burn them up. Can we do it? Would you let us do it, Lord? Let's they don't love you, let's burn them up. Let's get rid of them. If we do that, it'll just be easier for everybody, won't it? I mean, let's just let them live in that. There's no mercy in their life there. And Jesus rebuked that attitude in their lives, saying that that wasn't who he was. Think about how God has been rich in mercy towards us. What if Jesus looked at you and was like, well, I mean, you did it to yourself. I mean, you had to know that these choices were going to do that. You had to understand that when you walked away from me, that this was going to be the consequence of a life that was lived away. I mean, what if Jesus looked at us and God the Father did that and they just looked at us with scorn and judgment? Who could survive? And yet so many times as believers, we forget that we were pitiful, miserable, miserable, without Christ in our lives. And that God who was rich in mercy sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross for our sins. Well, if that's true, then doesn't that change a little bit about how we're going to think maybe we need to react the next time that we see a crisis? Because it's true. I mean, the the crisis definitely diverted the Samaritan's plans. He, He had something else that he had in mind. He had something else that he wanted to do. It was going to require time, energy, effort. It even required money in this case. And I'm sure a day's wage to him, I don't know if, if you think about just tossing around day's wage for you, but extrapolate that out for a minute. Think about what your company, your business pays you to work for a, one day, double it, and say, yeah, I could just toss that to somebody and then say, when I come back, I'll be happy to pay whatever else. Could you do that? Maybe not without thinking about it, right? Because it's a challenge for us to think about. It's a challenge for us to enter into a situation like that. But I think what we're missing is that we're pretty good at being neighbors to people who we like. I mean, that's easy. I'm pretty good about loaning a tool to my, my one neighbor who always loans me tools, that's easy. He helps me all the time. If he calls and asks me for help, I mean, I'm I'm happy to jump down the hill and go help him do whatever he wants to do. But are you happy to help those people that can't help you? Are you happy to enter into their story? Are you happy to not pass by and look at them with compassion instead of scorn, instead of judgment, and say, it's worth me entering into this person's story? Because what mercy does is it brings out compassion and moves me toward people instead of away from people and it moves us past our natural prejudices. Samaritans didn't like Jews either. How would you like to be told you're less than your whole life? You don't measure up because of your race, your ethnicity. You don't measure up. That's how they felt about these people. they always speaking down to us. They won't even walk through our country. They have nothing to do with us. I mean, a very difficult situation. He knew all of that. It moved him past his natural prejudices. You have them, I do too. So maybe it's not a racial thing. It's a socioeconomic thing. Well, that poor person needs to work harder. The only person who's ever said that is somebody who's not poor. Right, I mean, that's it. Is that really all the answer? Is, is, it, is it as nuanced as just you need to work harder? Is, is that the answer, or does our compassion move to be part of the solution in that crisis? Does our compassion move us to help that person take another step in following Jesus? Or do we just simply say, "Well, I mean, you know, they wasted their life and they got to live with it." If Jesus Christ said that to us, do you know what that means? You ready? It means certainty in hell for every one of us in the room. That's what that means. If Jesus Christ's attitude towards us was, well, They made their bed, they gotta lay in it. Look at those decisions, they've gotta figure it out. I mean, that's true, we did make all of those. Our sin is ours. I mean, it's our responsibility that we've done this, but God comes and lets us place our sin on Christ. And Christ going to the cross takes away our sin if we place our faith and trust in him. You understand, that's mercy at its highest level right there. Compassionate savior for us with mercy. Mercy doesn't accept racism or nationalism or any other excuse for poor behavior on our part. It doesn't allow us to do it. It won't do it. It won't condemn. It comforts. It it won't hurt. It heals. That's what mercy does. Mercy sees things through the lens of the Savior and says this is how we must respond in these situations. And and I, I know that we're all worried about, well, well, how would I know when I'm being a doormat? I don't know, you'll just know. But most of us don't get to that status, truthfully, because we never enter in the story. And these stories are messy. They're heavy. They often don't have simple solutions. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine this week about three different things that That we're trying to sort out here just, I mean, we're pastors, we're trained, we're theologically educated, and all we can do is look to the Lord and say, we need your wisdom, because we don't know. You ever feel that way? The good news is, is the Bible tells us in James that when we feel that way, we have a responsibility, don't we? Go before the Lord, ask for wisdom, trust that he'll provide it, and wait for him to do it. How are we going to get involved in this? I don't know. How can we make a difference? I don't know. How will we supply the needs? I don't know. But something in us must look with compassion on those who are miserable, whether it's their choice that brought them there or not, and point them to a Savior who loves them. This week, I, I bet that you're going to have a chance to see something at work or with a friend or as you roam the streets of the city that will make you go, uh, let's go to the other side. We don't have time to be involved in this. It's too much. It's tough. And my prayer for us is that rather than moving away from it, we might be bold enough to step towards it and believe that God might have ordained a moment for us to minister to someone in the state of misery so that they might see that there's a God who loved them before the foundation of the world and he sent his son to die in their place and that they can be justified freely by his grace. Because he doesn't run out of mercy. See, God's not like us. You know, if you've been married Sometimes you you struggle like, man, I can't believe he or she said that to me again. I can't believe they they did that one thing or didn't do that thing again. And you wake up the next morning and you're just kind of put out, honestly. I mean, just like, oh man. One of my favorite verses is from Lamentations that says, His mercy is new every morning. Are you glad that tomorrow, the, the tomorrow morning God's going to hit the reset button on his mercy for you? And, and, and it's not like he's starting with you going, oh man, I'm so sick of dealing with Jeff. This is annoying. Is he ever going to get it right? Probably not this side of glory. I don't know. But is Jeff ever going to fix this? Is Jeff, Jeff, come on. That's not how he approaches us. He hits a reset button. New every morning. They never fail. His compassion never fails towards us. And so when we see someone who's in a tough spot, we might want to scorn them. We might want to judge them. We might even say about some of our enemies or something like that, Lord, you want us to call down fire and just burn them up? It's not the answer. Jesus rebuked the disciples. This isn't the way, he says. This isn't my way. They didn't understand that he was going in just a few short moments be dying for those Samaritans they wanted to exterminate. He was going to die for them. He was going to be the Savior who rose from the grave. They didn't understand that. And and may we not find ourselves in the same spot where, where we're looking at people and they're throwaway people. They're not worthy. They're not worthy of our time. They're not worthy of our compassion. They're not worthy of our mercy. And what happens is, Lord, let's burn them up, let's get rid of them, take them out. So maybe it's not good fences that make good neighbors. Maybe it's something else that Jesus said. Be merciful so you will receive mercy. So we might think this morning, well, okay, then who is my neighbor? Well, we could start with what Galatians tells us. Let us keep doing good, especially to those who are of the faith. That's great. So that extends it, doesn't it, beyond just the the four walls of this church, but to all believers everywhere, to believers around the world, that we should be extending mercy and doing good for them, and, and that would be great. But the question still remains then, is that enough? No, it's not enough. Because being a neighbor is going to be a neighbor to someone who may not be of the faith someone who's outside of our realm and we have the opportunity to bless them. We have the opportunity to minister to them. We have the opportunity to come alongside them and make a difference in their life. I want us to be known as people who shock the world because we cross boundaries and stereotypical things that we all feel and We're just willing to minister to people. Because you know what didn't happen or wouldn't have helped, and and we do this sometimes, Well, we believe the right things. We believe the Bible, and that's good. But you know, the priest, if he'd have walked up to this guy and said, I tell you what, I'll help you. Can you name the Ten Commandments? Who cares? Got any wine or oil or a bandage or a, A way you can help me right now, I mean like, does that really matter right now? Look where I'm at. We believe the right things, we're orthodox. Okay, good, we should. And that should motivate us then to move from our head to our heart to our hands, doesn't it? Isn't that how that works? What God gives us here, it puts in our heart and it moves to our hands so that we begin to make a difference in the world. And Baptists used to be so good at this and we're falling back a little bit on it, but we used to go out and meet the needs of people and we used to try to, to intersect their lives where their needs were and then make a difference. Now we just want to tell them something. Believe the right things. Stop doing what you're doing. And we can justify ourselves. Oh, we believe the right things. We, we definitely do. We've, we've done a good job of that. We... But mercy moves towards people, may it be true of us. Father, may our compassion mirror yours. And we know that's a tall order because Father, we recognize that we're not perfect and we do have all these things swirling around in our heads and we don't know what to do. And Father, we need your wisdom and maybe here today, someone needs your wisdom. Maybe it's not for a crisis. Maybe it's just for a life decision they have to make. God, we ask for it. But we want our mercy to go to those who are just like us before we met Christ. Where would we be without you? Lost and miserable. That's it. And Father, we thank you that Christ died for us. Even while we were ungodly, unrepentant, and that your mercy and compassion moved towards us. God, thank you today that your mercy is new for us every moment of every day. Father, I pray that this morning, if there's one who's never experienced your mercy that they would today. God, that you would just let them see the beauty of Christ's death on the cross. As horrible as it was, God, it's the only thing that we can look to that will save us is to place our faith in him. God, may we see the next crisis as an opportunity to be a neighbor, to love someone to Christ to treat someone's wounds so that they come to Christ, to minister in the name of Jesus. Lord, help what's in our head flow through our heart and out through our hands. And we ask these things in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.